If you have a Bible, you can open to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to look at verse 1 to 11 this morning. We've had a break from our series in the Holy Spirit. Uh, We're back on track for the tail end of that series. We spent several weeks so far just thinking about who the Holy Spirit is and what He does in the world and what He does in the life of a believer. And so I just want to remind you of the ground that we've covered up to this point. Week one, we asked the question, who is the Holy Spirit? And the answer, most basically, most fundamentally, is that the Holy Spirit is the one who proceeds from the Father. Uh, The Son is begotten, eternally begotten of the Father. The Spirit proceeds. He eternally proceeds from the Father. He is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father and the Son. So we spent a lot of time talking about the Trinity over the course of this series. That shouldn't be surprising as we're talking about one of the persons of the Trinity. Uh, The Holy Spirit is the one who proceeds from the Father. Week two, we talked about the past in the Spirit's work in the past, specifically His work in inspiring the Scriptures. And there's two biblical images that we've made reference to, one from Paul's letter to Timothy and one from one of uh, Peter's letters. But we talked about the Spirit breathing out the Word of God as men wrote the Bible. And we also talked about the idea that the Holy Spirit carried men along as they wrote the words that we have in Scripture. The end result is that the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and every word that we read in the Bible is the very Word of God as it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Week three and four, we talked about the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a non-believer. And so we pulled from a couple of New Testament passages, and we said uh, the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Only the Holy Spirit can bring conviction to a person's heart about sin and righteousness and judgment and ultimately the truthfulness of God's Word. I can't convince them of that. You can't convince them of that. But it's the work of the Spirit to convict people about those truths. It's also the Holy Holy Spirit's work or the work of the Holy Spirit to regenerate sinners. So this is a work of the Spirit, a sovereign work the Spirit does in our lives. Before we put our faith in the Lord Jesus, He causes us graciously, kindly, mercifully to be born again, to have new life. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but the work of the Holy Spirit is that God makes us alive rather than dead. That's the idea of regeneration. Week 5 and following has been and will continue to be all about the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a Christian. So starting with the week where we said the Holy Spirit seals believers, everything from that point on in this series, including this morning, is specific to the life of a Christian. The Holy Spirit seals us. He claims us as His own. He keeps us safe and secure. Not one of God's people will be lost. He fills us. He's the very presence of God with His people. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is what it means to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. It's not some magical, mystical, esoteric thing. It simply means you have the Holy Spirit of God living in you. Uh, Corey preached a couple of weeks ago, the Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus. It's never the Holy Spirit's work to show up and say, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. 
But it's always the Holy Spirit's job to point people to the truth about Jesus and to glorify Jesus. This morning we're going to talk about this idea of gifting. It is the work of the Holy Spirit to gift God's people, to gift believers. Now I want to just be honest with you outset. There's a couple of challenges when it comes to saying we're going to have one sermon where we talk about the Holy Spirit gifting believers. The first challenge is that when you read the New Testament, there are a number of different terms used for the Holy Spirit gifting God's people. There's not just one term or one phrase used. So the Bible speaks about manifestations of the Spirit and spiritual gifts and gifts and activities and ministries. And the Bible even uses the word grace to talk about the Holy Spirit gifting God's people. So there's lots of different terms, lots of different vocabulary, and that's a lot of drilling down if you want to understand all of these phrases and all of these titles individually. I want to point out one truth to you as we think about the Holy Spirit gifting believers. I want to draw your attention to the very bottom, to the word grace, the word charis or charis. That's the same word that Paul would use if he were talking to you about your salvation. You have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus. This is God's undeserved, unearned kindness to you. And usually when you and I talk about God's grace, we're thinking about salvation. When we quote unquote get saved. And it's true. At the moment of your salvation, that is God's grace at work in your life. It is God's undeserved, unearned kindness to you that while you are his enemy, he has brought you into his family. That's grace. But I want you to understand that when you become a follower of Jesus, it's not like you start with God's grace and then the rest of it is up to you. It's all of God's grace. From God loving you when you were not lovable to Jesus dying on the cross for you to the Spirit giving you life and sealing you and filling you and even gifting you. Because one of the words that Paul uses when he talks about spiritual gifts is this very word grace. And you can even look up above at the word English word gifts is the Greek word charismata. And it's a combination of grace and domata. It's a gift of grace. When the Holy Spirit gifts a believer, it's not something you've earned, it's not something you deserve, it's not something you work for, it is a free gift of God's grace in your life. So as we think about this this morning, some of you need to experience God's grace for the very first time. You're lost. You've never put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you've never repented of your sin. And our prayer for you this morning is that God's grace would be powerful in your life to grant you repentance and faith and to draw you to the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would experience that kind of grace. Even if you've already experienced that grace from God, we continue to pray that this morning you would experience God's grace. Not in the sense that you need to get saved, but in the sense that when the Holy Spirit gifts God's people... It is a manifestation of His grace in their life. So, challenge number one, lots of different words, lots of different phrases used in the New Testament to talk about spiritual gifts. Challenge number two, there are at least four places in the New Testament 
where the New Testament authors list out spiritual gifts, okay? Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4. All of the lists have a different number of gifts in them, 7, 13, 5, and 2. So they don't agree on the number of gifts. And some of them include gifts that others leave out. Some of the gifts are only found in one list. Some of the gifts are found in multiple lists. And it can be a little bit confusing to look at these lists and to sort it out and to say, can we not agree on what the gifts are? Why are there all these different lists? They don't match. They don't line up. One of the thing I, uh, things I would submit to you is that there are gifts that exist in the body of Christ that may not be listed in these lists. These are not exhaustive lists of the gifts, but they're representative. For example, did you know that the gift of music is not listed in the New Testament as a spiritual gift? You say, well, that seems kind of important in the life of a church, that we have people that can come up here and they can sing and they can play, and they can hit the right notes and they can lead us. And I would agree, that's a gift from God and it can be used to lead His people, but it's not in any of these lists. Prayer is not listed as a spiritual gift. And many people would say, I think that's one of my strongest giftings, is prayer and interceding for others and praying for others. It's not listed in these lists. So there's challenges as we think about spiritual gifts. And as you look at all the words, terms, phrases, you look at all these various lists, you can come away saying, what exactly is a spiritual gift anyway? All this vocabulary used, all these lists that don't necessarily agree. Let's just start with the baseline definition. This comes from one of my New Testament professors, Tom Schreiner. He wrote a great book called Spiritual Gifts, and he says this. I would define spiritual gifts as gifts of grace granted by the Holy Spirit, which are designed for the edification of the church. Now, we might say more than that definition, and we will this morning, but that's a pretty good baseline for understanding what it is that we're talking about. What is a spiritual gift? We talk about the Holy Spirit gifting us. Well, it's a gift of grace. It's not something earned or deserved. It's given to God's people by the Holy Spirit, and these gifts are designed for the edification of the church. All right, that's enough by way of introduction. Let's look at the Scriptures together. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. You listen as we read the Word of God. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues." 
All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. Father, we stopped this morning and we're grateful. Uh, We are grateful for Your grace in our lives. You loved us when we were entirely undeserving of Your love. And You sent Your Son to show Your love for us and that Christ died for us while we were still sinners. We thank You for Your grace in sending Your Spirit to convict us and to regenerate us and to seal us and to fill us and to gift us. God, we want to be good stewards of these gifts, so we want You to help us understand uh, what the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives, and we want You to be honored in the way that we use our gifts here at Emmanuel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to work through this text, and we're going to first just ask the question, what does this passage teach us about the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit gifting believers? And then we have a few other questions that we want to wrestle with, some points of controversy and debate and some specific questions about leadership. And so we'll just start with the fundamental question, what does 1 Corinthians 12, 1 to 11 teach us about spiritual gifts. The first truth you need to see is this, spiritual gifts are to be exercised under the lordship of Jesus Christ. For some of you, verse 1, 2, and 3 seems completely detached from the following discussion about spiritual gifts. I assure you it's not detached. It's connected. And in verse 1, in verse 2, and verse 3, Paul says, look, I want to talk to you about spiritual gifts I do not want you to be uninformed or ignorant or misguided, but I want to set you straight on this. And the first thing he says is a little bit odd. He says, I want you to know that no one, no one will ever say Jesus is accursed and being led by the Holy Spirit. A person who's led by the Spirit will never say Jesus is accursed. And then the flip side of that is he says, no one will say Jesus is Lord unless and until that person is being led by the Holy Spirit. Now, we just need to not be childish in our thinking here. And let me just be honest. Paul is not talking here about the capabilities of your vocal cords to articulate certain words. Do we understand that? Paul's not saying it is impossible for a lost person to say the words, Jesus is Lord. Can I be honest with you? Many lost people say those words. Jesus said on the last day, many will stand before him and they will say, Lord, Lord. And Jesus will say what? I don't know you. Depart from me. I never knew you. You are workers of lawlessness and workers of iniquity. So unbelievers can vocalize the words, Jesus is Lord. Likewise, Christians can make the sounds, Jesus is accursed. I just said it. I read it from the text. You could say those words out loud. We're not just talking about the abilities or the capabilities of your vocal cords to make certain words. What we're talking about is salvation. No person, understand this, no person will truly, genuinely come to Jesus Christ as their Savior and their Lord, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in their life. 
It's impossible. Why is it impossible? Because left to ourselves, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And it is the work of the Holy Spirit, you know by now, to convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment, and is the work of the Holy Spirit to give us life, to regenerate us. And unless and until the Holy Spirit does that work in the world and in the life of a sinner, no person will say, truly say, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now let's flip it around and let's say this. When the Holy Spirit is at work in your life, truly at work to gift you for the good of His people, the Holy Spirit will never lead you to say disparaging things about the Lord Jesus Christ, untrue things about the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul gives one example. He says, no person being led by the Spirit would say that Jesus is accursed. Now, that's an obvious example, right? But I think what Paul's trying to say is, if you twist off in some sort of weird, false teaching, unbiblical idea, don't blame the Holy Spirit for that. Just because you open your Bible and you say, I'm guided by the Holy Spirit, doesn't mean that whatever comes out of your mouth is right. The Holy Spirit will never be at work in a person's life to say something that's false or untrue about Jesus. Can we take it one step further? When the Holy Spirit is at work in your life, He will never lead you to live your life in a way that contradicts or goes against the Lordship of Jesus. So I'm going to be honest with you, sometimes church-going people come up with all sorts of crazy things that they want to do in their life, sinful things, and they will say to people like me who are trying to counsel them out of that decision, Pastor, I've prayed about this, and the Spirit is leading me to do X, Y, and Z. And it's blatantly sinful. And we can just categorically say, that's not the Holy Spirit leading you. I don't need to pray about it. I don't need to think about it. I don't need to consult with the elders about it. If what you think the Spirit is telling you to do is sinful, it's not the Spirit telling you to do it. The Spirit always works under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Can we take it one more step further? When the Holy Spirit's at work in people individually and in a church, the Holy Spirit will be at work so that God's people recognize the Lordship of Jesus. Not so that they focus on the Holy Spirit. And there's an awful lot of places that you can go or turn online where you will hear people that say, hey, we love Jesus, but then all of their focus is on the Holy Spirit. That's not how the Holy Spirit works. He works to glorify Jesus. He works to point people to the truth about Jesus. He works in your life so that you recognize the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul lays that out clearly in verse 1, 2, and 3. Number two, spiritual gifts come from the Holy Spirit. I know that's obvious, but we ought to make this observation. Paul makes this point. Notice how Paul talks about the Holy Spirit in verse 4, 5, and 6. It's a very high view of the Holy Spirit. He views the Holy Spirit as truly God. He says, there's all these gifts, but they come from the Spirit. There's all these services, but they come from the Lord. 
So the Lord is the Spirit. He says that elsewhere in Corinthians, by the way. And there's all sorts of activities, and they come from the same God who empowers them all. The Spirit is the Lord. The Spirit is God. He's co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. He proceeds from the Father. He's not a lesser being. He is truly God. Notice what Paul says in verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Each one. Each person on earth? No. Each believer. Each part of the body of Christ. Each individual one has been given a manifestation of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives these gifts. And notice what Paul says down in verse 11. I promise we'll come back to 8, 9, and 10. He says, all of these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. The Spirit gives these gifts, and He doesn't ask you for your input. When you think about spiritual gifts, sometimes there's a process in trying to dis discern your gift and determine how you're gifted. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But let's be clear. Thinking about spiritual gifts in your life is not like test driving a car. Where you take it around the block, you drive it down to 191, you bring it back and you say, eh, no, not for me. Ultimately, it's not up to you. The Holy Spirit gifts as He will. This is not like, hey, try out Hulu, you can cancel any time. Just sign up for this gift of working in the nursery, please. After six months, we'll let you cancel. No strings attached. Right? It's not you who determines what gift you have. It's the Holy Spirit who gives these gifts, and He gives them as He wants to give them. You know what that means? That means when you see a person who's exercising their spiritual gift in the life of a church, there is absolutely no place for spiritual chest thumping or bragging or pride about how a person is serving in a church. Because guess what? Their giftedness, it didn't come from them. It came from the Holy Spirit who gifts to each according to His own will. That means when you see another person using their gift in some great way, you ought not put that person up on a pedestal as if they're somehow a cut above because their gifting did not come from them. It came from the Holy Spirit. Spiritual gifts come from the Holy Spirit. Number three, spiritual gifts are given for the good of the church. The good of the church. This is really important. Look at verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Each one has received a gift, and you have a gift, not for you, but for the common good, for the betterment of the body of Christ. So, I just made a list this week of some thoughts as I looked around at churches in the United States of America. You can let these ideas land wherever they land in your life and your experience. Let me just tell you some things that Paul is not saying here. When he says, to each is given a manifestation for the common good. To each person, a gift is given for the good of the church. 
this would mean that spiritual gifts are not given to a handful of talented people who we will promote to be Christian celebrities. Okay? It's not just a group of really special people that would rise to this level of giftedness. To each has been given. Not just a small number that have been gifted. Spiritual gifts are not given so that we can fawn over certain musicians or teachers as if they are not replaceable. We're all replaceable. All of us. All of us. Sometimes you go back in history and you hear people debate, who will be the next Billy Graham? Guess what? God will raise up somebody when he needs them. God will gift people as they need to be gifted. All of us are replaceable. All of us serve with gifts that are not of our own doing or creation, but they come from the Holy Spirit and he gifts to all for the good of the church. Spiritual gifts are not given so that we would build our own personal platform or ministry. They're actually given for the good of the church. They're not given to set yourself up above other people, but they're given for the strengthening and the betterment of the body of Christ. Last, spiritual gifts are not given so that a group of performers can entertain a crowd. That's not why God gives people spiritual gifts. Now look, you're going to have to sort this out. You're going to have to think about this in terms of how a church does what it does on Sunday morning. You're going to have to think about this in terms of what a church does or doesn't do outside of Sunday morning, how a church runs programs and ministries. You're going to have to think about this in terms of, of how a church thinks about leadership. All these things are connected, and it's not always super simple or super easy. But let me just tell you this. Spiritual gifts are not given to the church so that a small number of people can stand up on a platform and everyone else can enjoy the show. That's not what Paul's describing here. And when you find yourself in a context or a setting where that becomes the dominant mode of thinking about giftedness, something's off. A better view of spiritual gift is this. Every member making a unique and necessary contribution. Every member making a unique and a necessary contribution with all eyes fixed on Jesus. Not on us, not even on the Spirit. All eyes fixed on Jesus. Living lives built on the Word of God because the Spirit inspired the Word of God. Refusing to bow to culture, refusing to be led astray by false teaching, committed to making disciples, not just decisions. Being unified as a church, not being divided within a church, and ultimately seeking the glory of God as a church. Spiritual gifts are given for the good of the church. Number four, there's a variety of spiritual gifts. Eight, nine, and ten. Wisdom, knowledge, faith, healing, miracles, prophecy, distinguishing spirits, tongues, and interpretation of tongues. Add to that the list you find in Romans 12. 
Add to that the list you find just a few verses later in 1 Corinthians 12. Add to that the list you find in Ephesians 4. Add to that the list you find in 1 Peter 4. There are a variety of gifts. A variety of gifts. If you keep reading in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul describes a beautiful thing. It's not always how it plays out in local churches, but he describes the church as a body. And he makes the obvious point that you need all parts of your body working together to be in good health. You don't just need 98% to be rightly, fully healthy, but you need every part of the body making contribution, even the parts that seem small and you don't think about sometimes. For example, some of you over the last couple of weeks would say, there is a part of my body that has caused me problem. It's this little gap right here behind my nose called my sinuses. In the wind and the dirt and the hot and the cold and the pollen and all the rest. And my sinuses, this one little tiny part makes me feel like I'm completely breaking down and can't do anything. Well, you don't think about your sinuses when they're working well. One day of a sinus headache... And you say, oh, I need that part to work. And that's Paul's point with the body of Christ. Do you need legs? Yes. Do you need eyes? Of course you do. Do you need ears and hands? Absolutely. But you also need sinuses, behind-the-scenes things. You need pinky toes that don't hurt when you smash them against the bedpost in the middle of the night. You need it to be functioning and doing its job. You don't think about it much until you do. And that's how the church works. There's a variety of gifts. Each part of the body makes a unique contribution. Now let me ask this question. This is not on your notes. I didn't have space to put this in there. How would a person even begin to determine how the Spirit had gifted them? There's no mystical, magical process to this. I'll just be honest with you. I remember very clearly in my life when I was a high school student in my youth group in Amarillo, Texas, one night, on a Wednesday night service, they gave us a test, paper test, spiritual gift test, spiritual gift inventory. And you went through and you answered A, B, C, D, 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 answer all these questions. And then you go to the end and you add up the numbers. Did you answer this? We'll add this, put it in this column. And you come up with this nice-looking chart at the end. And the high bars on your chart are where you're gifted. And the low bars on your chart are where you should stay away. I had two bars that were almost at zero. Do you know what they were? Teaching and preaching. Zeros. Some of you are like, you should have listened to that test. <laughs> Insurance, accounting, something. Zeros. So how do you know what your spiritual gifts are? Okay, I don't want to demystify this and I don't want to say don't pray about it and I don't want to make this a totally non-spiritual thing, but can I just start off by saying, use some common sense. You're trying to figure out what your gifts are. Use a little bit of common sense. People change over time. Life circumstances change. 
The way you serve in one season of life may not be exactly the way you serve in a different season of life. Can we just use some common sense? I know the old tired thing about Moses never retired. He worked all the way to the end of his life serving. Great, fine, whatever. Does that mean a person has to serve in the exact same capacity the entirety of their life? I'm not convinced it does. Use a little bit of common sense. Here's some questions for you to consider. What are you good at? Can I ask you to add this next question to that one? What do other people think that you're good at? You might say, Pastor, I have heard myself sing in the shower for 20 years, and I'm amazing. I'm the best. You've never heard a voice like mine. And maybe we haven't ever heard a voice like yours. And maybe everyone else would say, you know what? We don't think that's how you're gifted. It doesn't mean that we don't like you. It doesn't mean that we think you're not gifted. It just means that other people need to confirm this. What are you good at? What do others say you're good at? What do you enjoy? What do you enjoy? Can we just think through this common sense? If the Spirit of God is living in you, the Spirit of Almighty God, and He's gifted you to do something for the good of the church, I'm not saying it's going to be a constant pleasure to use your gift in and out day after day, week after week, but there should be some joy in it. There should be something where you say, this is, this is how God made me. This is who He made me to be. And yes, I can step outside of this when need be and do other things, but this is what, this is what I'm good at. This is what I like to do. Can I add one more question that most people don't want to add? Most people would like to stop right there. Let me add one more question. Are you ready for this one? What does your church need? What does your church need? Spiritual gifts are given for the common good. I think the Spirit of God is going to gift people within the life of a church so that they can do what needs to be done. And one of the ways you might think about your giftedness is to look around and say, what does my church need? When Brooke and I lived in Louisville, Kentucky, I was a seminary student. We went to a great church called Ninth and O Baptist Church. When they planted the church, it was on what two streets? Ninth and O. They moved it to Breckenridge Lane across town and they kept the name, Ninth and O Baptist Church. Great church. It's about the size of ours, maybe a little bit bigger, uh, 500 or so on a Sunday, 600 or so. Medium sized church. Uh, at that church, there were a lot of seminary students. A lot of guys in Louisville training for pastoral ministry, missions ministry, whatever. And at our church, there were about a dozen professors from the seminary, probably more than any other church in town. We had Old Testament scholars, Hebrew scholars, New Testament guys. Uh, our pastor, Bill Cook, is a great New Testament scholar. And we had some really great minds and I'll just be honest with you, those men, most of those professors and pastors at our church, they did most of the teaching. And you know what? They didn't ask me to do much teaching or preaching. Just that church at that place in that time, that wasn't a burning, pressing need. Do you know what they needed? We need someone to work in the nursery. Would you sign up to do that? Do you know I learned later that they actually used the nursery as a filtering process to see who would be able to teach later? If you won't go do that, we're not going to let you do this. 
We need people to lead uh, grow teams, G-R-O-W, grow teams. is an outreach ministry of our church. It's not the most glamorous thing I've ever done in church life, but I served and led the G team. Monday nights, first Monday night of the month, I'll lead that team. They gave me three minutes to lead a devotion with the grow team. That's what they needed. We had an upward soccer ministry. Lots of kids, upward soccer. We needed coaches. We needed referees. We needed people to do devotions at halftime out in the field, right off Breckenridge Lane with cars zooming by and kids running everywhere and craziness. We need somebody to do that. What does your church need? Okay? You don't go to 9th and O. You go to Emmanuel. What do we need? Well, we need some people to teach. And we have some really good, gifted, godly teachers. We're hoping in the next year or so to add more classes where we have more people using their giftedness in that way. Not less people, but more people. So we need some people to teach. We need some people to serve on our finance team. I'll be honest, we don't need all of you on it. We got about 10. It's a good group. We need some people to pick up offerings and count offerings. We don't need all of you to do that. We have a good group of people that does that. We need some people to work in the nursery. I don't know if you've heard, but this summer we have a vacation Bible school. We need some people to serve at vacation Bible school. We send teams to Kenya twice a year. We need folks who would be willing to go or to give so that people could go. We do a thing on Wednesday nights called Awana. And it's a lot of kids, and it's a really tight window, and sometimes it feels like you're just keeping kids alive for an hour and a half, but we really want it to be a time of Bible teaching and Scripture memorization, and you know what it takes to make that happen? It takes people. It takes people who might say, this isn't my top area of giftedness, but it's what my church needs, and I can do it. And I can plug in and be a part. Common sense. What are you good at? What do others think you're good at? What do you enjoy? What does your church need? Now, let me make a few controversial points. Let's talk about quote-unquote charismatic gifts. I want to bring this up as we think about this issue and the Holy Spirit gifting us for a couple of reasons. One, because the list that we read has some gifts that you may look at and say, well, we don't do that. And number two, because many of you come from church backgrounds where churches did, at least outwardly, say they were using these gifts. And you have questions about this, and I know you have questions about this because people come to me with this question, this very question, regularly. And so I'm just going to lay out for you my position, what I think about these issues. This will be very brief. It's not a full discussion of this question of charismatic gifts, but I'll try to make it plain to you. How do we think about these charismatic gifts? Number one, you need to know this. The office of apostle and prophet were foundational gifts in the life of the church. That's how the Bible describes apostles and prophets, foundational gifts. There's two places, Corinthians, that talk about uh, Corinthians and Ephesians that talk about apostles and prophets as a gift. When we talk about the apostles, we're talking about the 12, and we would add in Paul, 
and we would maybe add in one or two more who are mentioned in the book of Acts and given this title of apostle. It's a very small group. When we talk about prophets, I see no reason in the world to read that word and that work of prophet any differently than we read it in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, a person receives a word directly from God. They bring it to God's people. They say, thus saith the Lord. It's a direct message from God. If what they say doesn't come to pass under the Old Covenant, they stoned them. These were inerrant words from God delivered by the mouth of a prophet. And what I'm saying to you is I think the New Testament lays out that there were apostles and prophets in the early church. And Ephesians 2.20 says they are the foundation Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, and the apostles and the prophets are the foundation. When you're building a building, how many foundations do you need? If you're building it right, you need one. They're the foundation. It doesn't mean we're done with them. It just means that once that foundation has laid, there's a different mode of building that takes place. The apostles and the prophets, a foundational gift in the life of the early church. Secondly, I would say this, the sign gifts that you read about in the New Testament are always connected to the apostles. And specifically, I'm thinking about healings and miracles. Healings and miracles, they're always connected with the apostles in the New Testament. Some of our friends would have us believe that when you read the New Testament, it's just miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. It's like the the gif of Oprah saying, you get a car, you get a car, you get a car, and it's like, you get a miracle, you get a miracle, you get a miracle, and they're just doling them out nonstop. My Sunday school class read a story this morning about some apostles who got arrested, and there was a miracle. An angel came and popped them out of prison. It's a miracle. As you read through the New Testament, if you read all of it, you realize it's not nonstop miracle after miracle after miracle. People die in the New Testament. And there was no one there to raise them from the dead or there was no one there to heal them. Paul spent the end of his life rotting away in a prison and no angel came to pop him out. As you read through the storyline of the New Testament, these miracles seem to become less frequent. And when we read about these sign miracles, they are connected with the apostles. They are the sign of an apostle. They're being performed by the apostles. Number three, the revelatory gifts, meaning revelation, were connected to the apostles and the prophets. This is prophecy, which is obviously connected to a prophet. It's tongues, which is clearly a form of prophecy in a different language, and it's the interpretation of tongues, which is tied to tongues in a language that people didn't understand. These gifts are always tied to the apostles and the prophets. So what I'm saying to you is that in the history of the early church, when the apostles died off, other than Judas, they weren't replaced. They didn't vote on someone to replace James. They didn't vote on someone to replace Andrew. They didn't vote on someone to replace Peter. They were foundational gifts, the apostles and prophets. The foundation was laid. And those gifts that were tied to the apostles and the prophets ceased with their death. Now, there's a lot more we could say about this. There's a lot more we could talk about. Some of you are just rolling your eyes into your head saying, the pastor doesn't even believe in miracles. 
I didn't say I didn't believe in miracles. I believe 100% in miracles. I don't believe the gift of miracles is in operation today like it was in operation amongst the apostles and the prophets. There's a difference. There's an important difference. Certainly we believe God can heal, does heal, can do amazing things in the lives of his people. But there's a difference in saying these gifts are present in the life of the church and these gifts were foundational to the formation of the church. If you want to know my thoughts on this, you can look at three books. I'll just suggest them to you for those of you who want to read further. Tom Schreiner has a book called Spiritual Gifts. I think it's the best on the question of spiritual gifts in general, but also the question of these miraculous and revelatory gifts. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson has a long book on the Holy Spirit. really makes you think. There's a really good book. And then there's a book by a guy named J.I. Packer called Keep in Step with the Spirit that I would commend to you if you want to study further. Now, I want to end with this, and this will be quick. Specific thoughts about the office of pastor, elder, overseer. Originally, we were going to spend a little more time here. We were going to talk about Brady being ordained as an elder in our church. And when Brady's family fell ill and they weren't able to be here and we postponed, my initial thought was, well, we'll just scrap that and we'll do something else. But I think we'll keep it. And I think it's good for us to be reminded about some of these things. I think it's good for us as American Christians who live in the West in 2024, we live among people who are completely confused about the office of elder, pastor, overseer. So I just want to make these points brief but clear as we think about this particular area of giftedness. Pastor, elder, overseer. The New Testament uses those terms interchangeably. And I gave you some verses. You can look them up. You can fact check me. There's passages where they just move back and forth from elder to pastor, pastor to overseer, overseer to elder. They use these words interchangeably to talk about the group of men qualified men called to lead a particular local church. So here's three simple truths I would have you remember. Number one, a pastor is called to shepherd God's people. Pastor is called to shepherd God's people. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, to the elders, shepherd the flock among you. And Peter says, don't forget that Jesus is the chief shepherd. Don't get too big for your britches. These aren't your people. You're not my people. When we ordain Brady, you won't be Brady's people. You belong to Jesus. He purchased you with his blood. He's the chief shepherd. He's the good shepherd. And he leads his people through under-shepherds. And those under-shepherds will give an account one day to the chief shepherd for how they did or did not lead God's people, how they cared for them, how they fought for them, how they knew them, how they loved them. Pastor is called to shepherd. Number two, an elder is called to teach. An elder is called to teach. This is the pattern in Acts 6 where the apostles appoint men to serve so that they can continue teaching. We saw this last year in the life of our church when we worked through the short book of Titus. And Paul is giving Titus instructions about elders. And he says, Titus, it's a two-handed fight. With one hand, you've got to expose false teaching and rebuke it and call it out. And with the other hand, you have to set sound doctrine in front of God's people. 
You got to fight off the wolves and you got to fight for the sheep. You got to fight off the false teachers and you have to fight for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That's the role of teaching in the local church. It's essential to what an elder is. An elder is not just a good guy who's trustworthy and reliable. An elder is someone who is able to teach. Number three, an overseer is called to lead God's people. Called to lead. The world hears leadership and the world thinks, oh, that's the boss. Oh, that's the person that gets to make all the decisions. Oh, that's the guy that could fire you if you mess up. Leadership. When Jesus talked about leadership to his disciples, he talked about washing feet. Serving people. When Paul talked to Timothy about leading at the church in Ephesus... Paul told Timothy, Timothy, the way you're going to lead these people has nothing to do with your age. Don't let them look down on you because you're young, but set an example for them to follow. That's leadership. Set an example in your life, in your godliness, that people can follow, Timothy. So we'll end with this. One short verse, Hebrews chapter 13. We'll pray that God would give us grace, more grace, to live this out. Hebrews 13 verse 17. The author of Hebrews says, Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you.